feel the need to pray as we start this morning because, uh, you know, when we preach, it's a, it's a pretty significant responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth. It's especially challenging when you're going to look at some of the things that we're going to look at here this morning because you're talking about the character and attributes of God. So let's pray together that the Lord would meet us in this moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of reaching into your word this morning and learning more about you. I do pray, Heavenly Father, as we get into this morning's message and consider these things about your character, about your attributes, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what we need to understand, not to worry about those things that we don't need to understand. Father, I pray that anything that comes from my flesh would quickly pass through the minds of all those who hear, but that your Holy Spirit would deeply embed your truth in the hearts of everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In our culture today, have you ever thought about this? Feelings are paramount. They're kind of the thing that is top of mind for everybody, what people feel. If you came from another planet where emotions were not known or were suppressed, you might think, wow, this is really an emotional planet. These people seem to be ruled by their emotional response to almost everything. The truth is that we humans are not like Spock on Star Trek. You know Star Trek, you know the history of his planet, his fellow Vulcans had almost destroyed each other because of emotions. And so they learned over time to suppress emotions and rely completely on logic. And when that happens, happy looks like envy, looks like anger, looks like annoyed. And all the other things we see up there, envy, fear, jealousy, it looks all the same, doesn't it? That's Spock. Well, we're also not like the android Data. You remember him on a later version of Star Trek? He couldn't experience emotions because he was a machine, but his maker had developed an emotion chip, and he can turn that on or off to experience what we humans take for granted. And Jim, we're also not like professional counselors. They're trained to not reveal their emotions in counseling situations, right? Jim, you struggle with that sometimes when you want to just say, I can't believe what you just said. You want to slap him around, or he wants to take the uh, Bob Newhart approach, just stop it. You want to take that? So they're like Spock. They look the same when they're interested, whether they're moved, whether they're bored. I kind of like the emotions in the bottom row, and I know you can't probably, most of you can't read that, but let me tell you the emotions in the bottom row. Empathetic, okay. Sympathetic, yeah, we get those for counselors. You're pathetic. (laughs) Planning holiday and constipated. It all kind of looks the same when you're a counselor. Nope, in our world, feelings seem to rule the day and they control many things. Yes, we all have emotions and it seems we have a lot of them. There's outrage. That seems to be caused by almost anything we say or do these days. People are outraged. Somebody's outraged about it. In some way, it seems to be kind of the dominant emotion of our day, especially in the news cycle. But feelings rule us in other ways, too. For example, feelings and emotions are the foundation, if you think about it, and the basis for most advertising. Advertisers want you to feel good or bad about this or that, 
and the short vignettes that you see on a television ad or the images that often serve as print advertising are kind of a short story to tug at your emotion. Okay, so there's the toe tag on the person who died of smoking. It kind of gets you right there, and it's kind of a, that's what they're looking for. They want you to feel a certain way about the product or the service that an advertiser wants you to buy or to move you to act on an issue. Now think about this. There's a reason that emotions or feelings are such an important part of our world, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. The reason is because we are made in the image of God. It tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The word shows that God is a God of emotion. We see words of emotion used about God often in Scripture, from anger to grief to joy, even to jealousy. These are all emotions that we, as his creatures, are well familiar with from personal experience. We've experienced them ourselves. So if we're created in his image, which Scripture declares, and Scripture also shows that God does have emotions, then our emotions must somehow reflect our image bearing. They are part of the created order of things. Now, there are other attributes and characteristics of God's, God that reflect his image and reflect his likeness. For example, our ability to reason, our creativity, our ability to love, to have compassion, things like wisdom and knowledge, our desire for righteousness and justice. These are examples of what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. In other words, God can pass on these things to some degree to us, his creatures. There are other things that are called the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, these are the things that we can never attain to because we're not God. Things like his self-existence, for example. We are created. God was not. He always existed. How about his omnipotence, meaning he's all-powerful. He can do absolutely anything and everything. Now, we, as his creatures, are limited in our power to what God allows us to possess. There's his omnipresence. That's the idea that he can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. We, his creatures, are limited. We're limited to time and space. These things are God's, and they are God's alone. There's another set of incommunicable attributes of God, and this is where we get into the theme for today, that are his immutability and his impassibility. Now, they're related in some ways, and they also relate to our opening look at emotions and feelings. First, immutability means unchangeable, okay? And we see several scriptures that highlight this. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Probably the best one is very clear and very succinct is Malachi chapter 3, Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And then we read in Psalm 102, beginning with verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out, 
like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. We read in the New Testament, just in case you think this is just an Old Testament idea of God, we read in the New Testament in James 1.17, for every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Scripture teaches us that God doesn't change. More specifically, how doesn't He change? He doesn't change in His being. He doesn't change in His perfections. He doesn't change in His purposes. And He doesn't change in His promises. Now, impassibility, that's another highfalutin theological word, requires more explanation. And actually, this is an attribute of God that is more disputed. Impassibility relates to passions or emotions, and according to one definition, means that God cannot suffer and is incapable of being acted upon by an external force. Related to this definition is the question about passion and emotions. How should we understand God's inner life? Does he have emotions? If so, how are his emotions like ours and unlike ours? Now, this is the question that I want to explore this morning. So hang with me here, okay? Because we're going to look at a lot of, I think, interesting things. I hope they're interesting to you too. There are good and solid theologians who believe that God is impassable and thus cannot truly experience emotions or truly suffer in any way. Now, there are also good, solid theologians who do not believe this, but rather believe that God can and does experience emotions. Some would go so far to say that God's emotions are much like ours in almost every way, and indeed they must be like ours for God to be truly loving. In other words, God can be influenced and changed by his own emotions. Well, I'm going to take kind of a middle ground here this morning for what it's worth. And since I'm up here preaching, I'm the one that gets to do it, right? I think the truth is somewhere between the edges of these two, maybe we might call them extremes. I believe we must be very careful. We're treading on shaky ground here. And there's more at stake than meets the eye. So we have to define terms carefully and consider this carefully to make sure we know what we're really saying. And we also must consider the implications and consequences of what we believe about God's immutability and impassibility. Now, impassibility traditionally has been put forth as a defense of God's immutability. You can see how these two might relate to one another, right? One of the key questions here is, how does God experience emotions? If he does, how does God experience emotions? Is it the same as when I experience emotions? Now, when I grieve about something, believe me, I'm suffering and it's emotional. When I get angry about something, I'm reacting to a stimulus outside myself, to someone or something that makes me angry, usually in traffic. When I grieve, it's because of something someone I love has done or maybe not done. And when I grieve, it's because something terrible has happened or is happening to someone. In other words, it's things outside of me. It's an external influence that's causing my emotions. The emotions are very real. 
If you think about it, even good emotions have external causes. When something good happens, I rejoice. I experience joy. Simple things even, like a good meal or a great church service, might make me feel good. But that's provided outside of me. When my team wins a big game, that feels really good. But it's beyond my control. It happens, and I react. When one of my church family or biological family has a baby, I rejoice right along with you. But this event that caused my rejoicing is external to me. It's external factors that develop the positive or the negative emotions in me. But even with the emotions that influence me, am I ruled by my emotions? That's one of the key questions we have to face when we're looking at God's impassibility. Now, with me, and I'm guessing with most of you, I at least attempt to keep my emotions from always being the absolute deciding factor in an important decision for me. I want my will, hopefully guided by the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, to make my decisions for me. I don't want my emotions and how I feel about something to be the only factor. I want to be able to recognize truthfully that emotions certainly can influence me. They do with all of us. It's part of the human condition. But I don't want them to decide for me. I'm fallible. The Word tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. I don't want those emotions from my heart to be the final decider, the final arbiter of my decisions. So theologians throughout history have wrestled with this idea. They're rightly wanting to defend what the Bible says about God being unchangeable. But they're also wanting to explain the biblical language of God's emotions, which we see throughout Scripture. So let's think about how can we reconcile these two things. Both Augustine and Aquinas, those were early church fathers, distinguished between passions, which were passive and involuntary, and affections, which were active and voluntary. Let's say that again. We make a distinction. They made a distinction between passions, which were passive, in other words, acting on that, and involuntary versus affections, which were active, a decision, and voluntary. I decide to do this. Now, affections, they believed, were the consequence of right reason. I think if anybody has right reason, it would be God, wouldn't it? Passions were disordered and misguided, and therefore they were often associated with sinful inclinations. And we're talking about the kind of emotions that get us kind of out of control, and they make us do things that maybe we know we shouldn't do. So I'm going to quote a theologian here, and I want you to, especially from this point out, hang in here with me, okay? Because we're starting to go into deeper waters, and I want you to keep your head above water, okay? There's a theologian named Herman Bavink. Don't you love that name? The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God, in Him alone, for only He is pure being and no becoming. So let's remember that idea of the difference between being and becoming as we move along. And James Packer said this, God exists forever, and He is always the same. He does not grow older. 
His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers nor lose those that he once had. He does not mature or develop. He does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. He cannot change for the better, wrote A.W. Pink, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. The first and fundamental difference between the Creator and his creatures is that they are mutable and their nature admits of change, whereas God is immutable and can never cease to be what he is. So if God is unchangeable, but think about this with me, if you pull the string of this attribute of God, like you pull a thread on a sweater, what will unravel? Will you have a miserable God? Will you have a God who's unhappy all the time because he shares in the suffering of his creatures? Is God like us in that he is becoming something? We are. Is he subject to, key words there, is he subject to the external forces of his own creation? Does he react like I do when bad things happen? Can he experience the brokenness that I feel when I experience pain and suffering? Is he in the process of changing like we are? So you can see, here's where we find the danger of making God's emotions just like ours. We must remember how Paul presented the mind of God to us in Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? God didn't need a counselor. Sorry, Jim, he'll never be sitting in your office. Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen is what Paul wrote. So when you lose the biblical teaching, I, the Lord, do not change, you can start to lose many other very important things about our great God. So where does that take us? If we want to treat I, the Lord, do not change, and we want to treat it with integrity, how can we also say that God has an emotional life? Can we admit that in us, emotions can change us? probably often do change us in some ways. Is that true of God too? First, I think we have to say that to be impassable is not to be passionless. To be impassable is not to be passionless. It's clear from Scripture that God cannot change because He cannot be any more loving. He cannot be any more just. He cannot be any more good or caring for us. We, on the other hand, can grow and change in these things. So though Scripture uses the language of emotion to unveil God's deep care for us, it's not a love or care that's subject to those emotions. God doesn't experience the changes we do as a result of our emotions. Some days, depending on what's going on in my life, I'm incredibly happy and joyful. Then there are those other days, depending on what's going on in my life, I may be very sad. I might even be grieving in certain situations. I might even be close to despairing. Now, the key phrase here is depending on what's going on. But God's emotional life is not identical to mine. Yes, Scripture tells us that God is grieved. Yes, the Word tells us that God rejoices. It tells us that He has pity, that He is full of mercy, that He is overflowing in love. 
So if anger, if joy, if pity are emotions, then God must have emotions of some sort. We shouldn't be afraid to speak of God in the ways that his word speaks of him. But still, we can't say that God's emotions are just like ours. Is an emotion what takes place when something happens and my heart starts pumping more blood and the glands re- uh, release endorphins? Well, that's what's happening in my body when I experience emotion like fear or joy. But God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So I think, again, we have to be very careful about drawing these comparisons. And if you think about it, there must be some emotions that have to be totally foreign to God. They're not foreign to us. Or they would be even inappropriate for us to attribute these emotions to him. So let's think about some of those emotions. For example, joy. Yes, Scripture says God has joy. Anger. How about that? Yes, the word says in places that God gets angry. He can be angry. How about despair? How about falling in love? How about fear? How about depression? Surprise, envy, loneliness. See what I mean? God can't despair. He sees the end from the beginning. Why would he despair? He knows his plans and purposes are perfect. God can't know fear. He's omnipotent. Nothing can harm him. What would he have to fear? Whom shall he fear? God has decided to love because love is an essential part of who he is. He can't fall in love like in our culture where love is just an emotion. Depression? No. I wouldn't want to trust in a depressed God, would you? Surprised? Well, he orchestrates history and he knows how it all turns out. God is never surprised. Envy. What would God envy? He created everything. He owns everything. We read in Isaiah chapter 40, beginning with verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. That's our God, folks. God doesn't get anxious. He doesn't get stressed out. He doesn't get bitter. He's never overcome by emotions. They don't hit him all of a sudden like they sometimes do with us. Let's think of how we describe human emotion and apply this to God. God's never moved to tears. He's not overcome with rage. He doesn't fall in love. He never gets frustrated. Emotions don't just happen to him, and they certainly don't control him. They absolutely do not make him do anything. We can't say that, but God can. In all these ways, even in those emotions we apparently share with God, God's emotional life is fundamentally different from ours. They can't force him to act in certain ways in order to make himself happier because God is completely free. He's completely self-sufficient. He makes decisions based on his eternal wisdom, his understanding, and on his perfect will and unchangeable 
purposes. So some of the emotional language in Scripture must be so we can understand and in some ways relate to an omnipotent being. Yes, God is intimately involved in the world he created, but much of what we might see in our finite understanding as emotional reactions, quote-unquote, to his creation are rather than being reactions, they are his predetermined, already decided, holy actions based on what's best because he already knows what we will do or say and he already knows what is best for us. One theologian said that God is always sizing up what's going on. He evaluates what's happening based on his character and based on his purpose. So how God sizes up or evaluates that situation results in what we see as anger, grief, joy, love, or compassion directed toward part of his creation. Consider this, most of what we call emotion in God is his evaluation of what is happening with his creation. So God has real emotions, but they are always active. They are not forced upon him. They are not dictated by others. God's inner emotional life suffers no change because his emotions come from his objective, always true, value-based evaluations or viewpoint. So as we talk about God's emotional life, we must keep this in mind. His changing external emotions are but a reflection of his inner unchanging nature and character. These emotional changes in God relate to the temporal changes in his creatures. So one of the challenges here that we face in thinking about this is those passages of Scripture that speak of God changing his mind or regretting in contrast to those that say that God does not change his mind. Let me read from 1 Samuel, first from uh, chapter 15, verse 11, which says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. I think regret is an emotional reaction. Regret is certainly a change of mind when it happens in us, isn't it? Yet 18 verses later, in the very same chapter, in verse 29, we read this. Also, the glory of Israel, now that's a reference to God. So God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So what is it? So what is it? Does God regret or doesn't he? I think what I found here is the only way I can deal with it, the only way to make sense of this is to understand that on one level God can regret and on another level it's impossible for him to have regret. So that's to say in another way, that's kind of like saying God's regret is not like our regret. God is sorry in this passage because Saul has changed, but this does not mean that God has changed. The change in God is a response to a change in someone else. In fact, God's change is a manifestation of his unchanging character. God's passion for the glory of his name, his passion for righteousness and justice never change. But when the external world changes, God's relationship to that world also changes. So when Saul's behavior changed, God, immutable in nature and purpose, chose to respond to Saul in a different way in order to be true to himself. God changed his mind in order to not change his mind. 
related to these thoughts, I found an illustration that was really helpful to me, and I hope it'll be helpful to you too. I was going to try to come up with a way to illustrate this on screen, but I'll, uh, and I even called our, our resident science teacher, Beth, and she came up with one way, but we couldn't quite get it done. So, But think about this, okay? Think about this. One way to think of God's immutability in his emotional life is to think of white light refracted through a prism. The light is unchanging. The nature of that light is consistent, but as it passes through the prism, we see the white light in all the colors of the rainbow. In the same way, God is immutable and impassable, but when his nature and character are refracted through the prism of constant change, we see differentiation. The different colors are not an illusion. We really see them. They are really there, just like God's emotions are not an illusion. The different colors are an expression of the same white light, just as God's emotional interaction with the world is an expression of his immutable, impassable character. You follow that? You follow that? A rainbow is essentially the result of a prism of water in the form of rain through which the unchanging light of the sun passes. And what do we see? We see all the colors of the rainbow. Think about that for a second. The more I think about this illustration, the more I like it. Remember that Scripture compares God to perfect, bright, illuminous white light, doesn't he? When his perfect light is seen through these filters, the prism of our own earthly experience, and our own earthly understanding, we see the different colors of his character, and they come out as emotions in this case. But the bright light is the same. The bright light doesn't change, just as the sunlight is the same, even when it's making rainbows. You get that? I don't know about you. I thought that was a really cool illustration. One of the things that helped me really come to grips with this whole idea A key thing to remember is this, that God's emotions are revealed relationally to us. God's emotions are revealed in his relation with us. It's his relationship to us, his creatures, through his word, through his son, that he reveals this side of himself for our benefit. And apart from that, we could not in any way begin to understand God and his perfect love and his perfect plan for us. This is because God is, surprise, surprise, God is like us, but yet not like us. In Psalm chapter 50, verse 21, we read the Lord saying, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. That's God speaking. You thought that I was one like yourself. So we can't presume that the emotional language in Scripture means that God's emotions are just like ours. Another way God's not like us is that he existed eternally. He existed before the beginning of time and before creation, God had already lived forever. So he was always contented. He was never lonely. There's another emotion that God doesn't have, loneliness. He didn't need us. He didn't need us for him to be satisfied. He didn't need us to fulfill some need in himself. Now, we, his creatures, have a very deep need for God, and we have a very deep need for each other. There's this emotional need we all have for fellowship with God 
and for fellowship with each other. Yet God existed eternally in union, love, and joy together with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And happiness and joy are emotions, and God had it in spades long before we came along. He lacked nothing. He still lacks nothing. One writer said that God would be that hard-to-shop-for person at Christmas. Definitely. We read in Psalm chapter 50, verses 9 and 10, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. We read in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that he pleases. He does what he wants to, always. John Piper has said that God is a happy God. Isn't that good? Now consider this thought about why we want God to be a happy God and we don't want him to be impacted by emotions just like we are. Consider this story. I'm 100 miles from home and I'm on a back road and my car breaks down. Well, I'm not Jim Garrett. I'm not Jason Feathers, so I can't fix my own car. I can't find my wallet. There's no cell phone service. So I walk a half mile to the nearest town. I find, of all things there, a phone booth hey, I guess there's still phone booths out there, even in this day of cell phones. So I call Jim Garrett. He doesn't answer. I call Jason. He doesn't answer either. So I'm really stuck. There's no repair shop open. There's no money anyway. So I've got to ask for some help. So I begin to look around. I look to one side and there's a man stepping out of a funeral home and he's clearly grieving. He's wiping tears from his eyes. Across the street, I see a couple of teenagers and they're kind of cursing at each other. There's another guy coming from an apartment building across the street, but he slams the door as he's walking out. I'm not going to ask him for anything. There's also uh, a woman pushing a shopping cart and wearing tattered clothes, probably homeless. And then there's a guy, kind of looks like Joel Vasanen, and he looks really happy. He's got a big smile on his face. He's talking to another guy on a porch nearby. Whom should I approach? Certainly none of those people who clearly have these big problems. They're unhappy, or they're sad, or they're angry, or they're depressed, or they're very needy. I'm going to go to the happy guy that looks like Joel. Happy, joyful people are the ones that I think are most likely to help me in this particular circumstances. Think about this. God's like that. He's always in a good mood. He's never depressed. God is joy overflowing. That's where his mercy comes from. And it's a joy, here's the amazing part, it's a joy that he wants to share with us in Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 11, what? These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So he wants to share his joy with us. God has a joy that's indescribable and he wants to share it with us. So we see God's emotions best in his relationship with us. For example, his grief and even his anger over our rebellion and our sin, but more so we see the practical outworking of emotion in his actions toward us. We see in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. So God doesn't just have compassion. What does he do? He shows compassion. It's what he does. He's about more than feeling. He's about doing. Then listen to this verse from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, music is inherently emotional, isn't it? It can reach us and it can stir in us emotions that simple words often cannot. That's why we use music in worship. It's also why music can sometimes be used to convey even evil ideas. It can be used for good or ill. But here it tells us that God not only rejoices over us with gladness, but he exalts. I think that's an emotional word. He exalts over us with singing. Unlike our emotions, God's emotions are sinless. In Christ, we creatures can grow in emotions that are decreasingly sinless. And isn't that good news? Why else would Scripture tell us to be angry and yet not sin if we couldn't move toward that kind of anger as we grow in Christ? But we have to admit that often, maybe even most of the time, many of our emotions are truly sinful reactions to something external that stimulates that reaction. So those who define impassibility by saying that God doesn't have emotions are trying to avoid attributing to God the sin and weakness that characterize our emotions, human emotions. And they're right to want to avoid this. But these things don't come from the fact of the emotions themselves. They come from the fact that we are fallen. So when we see emotions attributed to God, we can rightly assume that they are perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, and they're enough like ours so that we can at least begin to understand these emotions, but they're not entirely like ours. That includes both his joy and his grief. That includes his anger. And as with his contentment, joy, and anger, God's grief, as the Bible describes it, is a worthy emotion. It's an emotion without weakness, without impurity, without anything uncomely, It never paralyzes him, and it did not lead him sentimentally to ignore justice when seeking the salvation of his creatures. The bottom line is this, when it is right to grieve, when grieving is the perfect response, that's what God does because he is perfect. The problem with this is that no human analogy is ever sufficient completely when we speak of God. So how does all this begin to work in God's mind? How can a perfectly happy God grieve? How can we be angry with our, how can he be angry with our sin? Well, how about this? We cited a few minutes ago that he sees the end from the beginning. He sees everything. God sees everything as one eternal now. What's happening here, what happened a few minutes ago, a few months ago, and what's going to happen next month and into eternity. The sin of the world did not catch him by surprise. He knew the suffering that this would cost the world, and he knew that this suffering would mean for Jesus, God the Son, that he would go to the cross. But he also knew, and he had already planned the solution, redemption through the blood of Jesus. He knows that the church of Jesus Christ will triumph in the end. He sees the past, 
present and future as clearly as we look around this room this morning and see each other. God sees that. So maybe you're the past, you're the present, you're the future. God sees it all. I have to turn my head to see that. This, I believe, is how God can be truly blessed and joyous and also grieve and weep. Why should we care about any of this? Is this just a, well, hopefully interesting, but is just just an intellectual exercise? Well, think about this. I believe that the more we know about our great God, about his character, and indeed his attributes, the more we'll want to know. The more we'll explore his greatness in his word. The more we'll glorify him, which is what our lives in Christ are really all about. Secondly, I think this is important, why we should care about this. As we draw closer to God and we know him better, as he shapes us more and more by his grace into his image, our emotions are, over time, transformed to be more like his. Isn't that good news, too? We can grow in these things. As we noted with anger as an example, most of our anger is unrighteous, it's human, it's sinful, but the word says in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. This tells us that we can have such a thing as righteous anger. We can begin to be transformed into the image of Christ and have our emotions become more like God's. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Finally, the fact that God has a kind of emotions communicates to us in a way that maybe nothing else can, that he cares. We've seen that he rejoices over us. We've seen that he grieves and he's angered by our sin because why? He knows the harm it will cause us. We've seen that he's jealous because he knows that when we love other people or things more than him, that's the very definition of idolatry, it will only bring us to ruin. And he knows that no one can love us more completely or purely than him. So he's a right to be jealous. We have an unchanging God who also rejoices and grieves with us. We have an eternal creator who chooses to step into time, today and always, and in the incarnation, the word who became flesh, Jesus. He chose to interact with his creatures. He chose to love us. He chose to redeem us from the curse. We have a God who, because he's unchanging, is not in the same emotional mess that we're in. And because of that, he's able to save us. In his image, we have emotions that are like, but also unlike his. Because his emotions come from his character. They come from his purpose. They come from not external influences on him like they do with us. And you know what, folks? This morning, I believe that's very good news for all of us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful picture from your word of how you are unchangeable, but yet you interact with us in time and in space. And we see these things that are emotional reactions that shows us, Father, your deep love, shows us your care. Father, we're also so aware that we are so unlike you. And Father, we do desire that in Christ we would be more and more shaped and molded, changed, transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. May these things glorify you more and more as we get to know you better and understand you more, Father. And we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.